Hello, hello. This is Kathy Colas Audiobooks, and today we have episode 14 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zart. Heliana decides to go up into the mountain tonight alone. As she walks, she thinks about her parents and realizes that Carson's dad isn't the only one that was affected by a Skogsra. Here we go. Heliana lays her bike up against the side of the fort and using the headlamp her farfar had gotten for her, climbs in. She shines the light on the photos of the women on the walls, all of them Skogsra, tricking young boys into loving them. She then tears the photos down one by one, balling them up and tossing them into the corner. Whoever the fort belonged to, they were going to have some redecorating to do. She hadn't noticed the smell last time, seeing as how she'd been so focused on keeping Carson out of jail. Which, thanks to her quick thinking, she'd managed to do. Still, there are things Heliana wants to do before going back home to her far-far, who, hopefully, hasn't yet noticed she's snuck out. The thought of her grandfather checking on her in the middle of the night reminds her again of the stories he would tell her at bedtime. In her pocket, she has the last figurine he made for her. Fossogram. Just as she's running her finger over the wood like a talisman, she hears the cry of an animal from somewhere up on the mountain. The fort is near the base, so it wouldn't take all that much more walking for her to reach it. She hears another cry in the dark and remembers how in her far-far stories, the Skogsra would sometimes have tales like wolves. Maybe it was a Skogsra calling out to her up in the woods of the mountain, trying to entice her. But if it was, Heliana knew how to protect herself against one. They hated profanity. Her grandfather hadn't told her that. She had to find out about it in a book probably because he didn't want to encourage her use of bad words around the house. She listens for the howls again, but everything has gone silent. As she leaves her bike at the fort and starts to make her way up the mountain, she understands that her far-far never once told her that it was a Skogsra who had tempted and ultimately destroyed both her mother and father. Even so... It was the story that Heliana had, at some point, started to tell herself. A story that had become as real to her as the car that had crossed the center lane and taken her parents from her. Soon, it begins to feel like the moon is pulling her up the mountain. Even as she stumbles over rocks and stumps hidden beneath the wildflowers, Heliana feels summoned by the moonlight and the clouds wreathing the top of the butte like a halo. She eventually slips and falls, scraping her knees, but she feels no pain. When she raises herself up off the ground, she sees that she's tripped over a long stick. It's fairly straight, with something like a handle at the top, which comes in handy as Heliana plods her way up the increasingly steep mountain. As she walks, she thinks of her mother and father sitting on a bench. They're on vacation, and her father is on one side of Heliana, her mother on the other. They don't have a bucket to make sandcastles, so they're using their hands. It's a sand baby, her mother is saying to her, 
looking down at the mounds they've made. And she's right. There's one big mound that could be the body, a smaller mound on top that could be the head. Her father sculpts the head into a triangle, says, Look, it's Tiny Timmy Mouse. It was Heliana's favorite story back then. Her father would tell some version of it every night before bed. In the story, there was a small mouse who loved cheese and ate so much that one day he turned into a piece of it. But the mouse's mother didn't know this and accidentally tried to eat poor Timmy. Sometimes it was the mother doing the eating. Other times it was a cat or a neighbor. But always her father would lean down and pretend to eat Heliana while telling the story. The nibbles he gave her would always make her giggle. She didn't care so much about the story, about Timmy, but she did care about the nibbles. She hears more howls. They're closer now, much closer. She knows coyotes have been a problem in town, attacking the smaller dogs, but she's never really seen one before. It must be the moon they're talking to. The high, wavering, almost mad pitch of the howls reminds her of the loons back in Wisconsin, how they'd yodel out across the water to one another. Her father would sometimes take her out in the boat just to watch them. Heliana loved the way they'd run across the top of the water before takeoff. They were such silly birds. When mad, they'd even do a little dance on the water that made them look like penguins. That's to scare off their enemies, her dad had told her. Who are their enemies? Heliana had asked. We are, he'd said. And if we don't leave her alone, she'll exhaust herself. They've been known to die that way. It had scared Heliana, this idea that she could frighten the birds so much they'd die. After that, she always kept her distance from them. Maybe that's what the coyotes were doing now. Maybe they were scared and telling Heliana to go back. But she couldn't go back. She stops to rest, setting the stick down. Down below her, the town is lit up. It had to be nearly midnight, and yet look at how many lights were still on. Her farfar always went to bed by nine o'clock and rose again at five. She turns back toward the face of the mountain and begins to climb. Again, there's howling, coming from the trees across the way. Heliana keeps her head down and climbs. She remembers seeing her father nibbling on the neighbor one day. At the time, Heliana hadn't understood what it meant, but something about it had made her stomach hurt, so she told her far, far. And then there was a night filled with yelling, dishes being broken, Heliana told to stay in her room, then a door slamming, then quiet, then the sound of her mother sobbing. Heliana watched from a window as her father punched a tree before driving off in their car. She tried staying awake, waiting for him to come home, but she eventually fell asleep to the sound of her mother's crying. A week later, both her parents were dead. No more nibbling. For anybody. Heliana reaches the top where the chairlifts would normally let people off. The warming hut looks strange now, sitting there without any lights on. She stares at it for a moment, trying to figure out what looks so odd. 
and then she realizes what it is. The building is shaped exactly like a coffin. When she turns back around, she sees something standing there across from her. It's the glint and flash of the eyes that she notices first before the rest of the animal takes shape. Another howl rings out from the trees, followed by a yipping sound, then a growling. The growling is coming from the white dog standing in front of her, but it isn't a dog, it's a wolf. Or maybe a coyote. Heliana isn't sure she knows the difference now that she's actually staring at one. She decides it's a coyote and takes a step forward, prompting the creature to open its mouth wide. A combination of hiss and growl escaping through its long, stained fangs. Oh, you don't want to do that, Heliana says quietly. You're just asking for trouble acting like that. Again, the dog bares its dirty teeth and growls. The fur on its back is raised, like it's stepping on a live wire. Heliana looks to the top of the mountain, to the moon, and wonders if one of the doors to the warming hut is open. Shit, she says to the beast. Fuck! But the words come out feeling stiff, like new shoes before you've had a chance to wear them. She tries again. Be on your twatty way! or else. The dog growls, paws at the dirt. Heliana isn't certain, but she thinks she can see more eyes in the trees, more Skogsra. She turns her back, manages two steps toward the warming hut, before she feels a stabbing in her neck, a smell upon her like the devil's very own breath. Then there's a sound like an engine revving in her ear before she goes tumbling head over heels. When she finally comes to a stop, the dog is already standing there before her, his mouth hanging open, his fangs bared. Heliana raises herself up onto her knees. She's looking into the very mouth of hell. This is what Haliana's thinking just before the fangs rise and a darkness engulfs her. She can feel a tearing at her skin, her body being dragged across dirt and rock. Then there's a sort of rising into whiteness, almost like she's running across water, getting ready for liftoff, a sweet rapture laying hands on her as the stick slips from her hands. The night before, Carson's mom had made him show her the fort at the base of the mountain. They had found Heliana's bike, but no Heliana. Carson had seen the crumpled-up playmates in the corner, but didn't, of course, tell his mother about them. They drove back into town after that and knocked on Newt's door. When he answered in his pajamas, his eyes still crusty with sleep, Carson had to tell the story all over again. When he got to the part about the Skogsra, he watched as Newt brought his old weathered hands to his head. That wasn't what the stories were for, Carson heard him mutter. They were only meant to distract her. Carson then watched as his mom gave him a hug and reassured him that nobody thought anything otherwise. I'll make us some coffee, she told him, and then I think we ought to call the police just in case. Carson was sent home after that, 
His mother stayed behind with Newt. I'll be home soon, she told him. Just try to get some sleep, okay? I'm sure everything will be just fine. But when Carson had gotten home, every time he closed his eyes, the words, just in case, kept running through his head. Just in case what? The thought had kept him up most of the night. The police must have gotten word to the resort about the girl, because by the time they got to the mountain in the morning, the sheriff is there, and the chairlift is already up and running. There are others, too, about fifteen volunteers all told. Sally White debated whether to come along, but in the end had decided it was the right thing to do. And Gordon's there in his overalls and beard, looking like a spry mountain goat, though nobody would dare to tell him that. Georgie, too, came along, and is busy hiding behind a cup of coffee and a hoodie. People start breaking off, getting ready to ride the chairlift up in pairs. Newt and the sheriff are the first to go. Sally doesn't have anybody to ride with, but she gets in line anyway. She's brought along her medical bag just in case. Makes her feel better somehow. Safer. No matter how bad things may have gotten, she's still a vet. And after last night, she feels like she understands the missing girl a little now. After all, she knows what it's like to lose someone you love. She knows what it's like to feel the need to blame someone for what's been taken from you. Only in her case, Sally blamed Sally. Judith, hanging back a bit, watches as Easy and Georgie board the chairlift together. Something about the way Easy takes Georgie by the hand and walks her into position reminds Judith of a wedding, of a bride and groom coming together before a priest. Judith suspected Georgie might be seeing someone, but now at least she knows for sure. How's your noggin? Georgie asks once they swing up into the air. You mean from the hangover or from that log somebody checked me with last week? Both, I guess. They never did find out who hit Easy. Some friend of the Granolas, no doubt. Georgie told him later that people cleared out almost before Easy hit the ground. The worst part, to Easy anyway, was that they used his own firewood on him. My noggin's just fine, he says, draping his arm over her shoulder. Not much to damage up there anyway. Why do you do that? Do what? Talk about yourself like that. Like you're, like you're not worth anything. None of us are worth anything. Then why are you looking for this little girl? Something to do. You don't mean that, Georgie says, pulling away from him. What's wrong? You're acting weird, weirder than usual. It's gonna sound stupid. Can't be any stupider than what you just said. Georgie nudges him a little. The chair sways. Come on out with it. It's my dad's death day, the day he died, like the opposite of a birthday. November 12th. Your dad's? Georgie nods. I hate dead people. I drink to that, Easy says, and puts his arm back around her. Then, once he's sure she won't pull away again, he leans in and gives her a kiss on the cheek. I sure do like you, Georgie Long. Georgie doesn't know what to say to this. For all of her talk about self-love, 
she has to admit she almost feels like Easy's mistaken her for somebody else. Somebody interesting. Me too, she says quietly. But maybe we should be keeping an eye out for Heliana. Easy leans over the bar, stares down into the abyss of flowers. What's this girl like, anyway? Gordon said she's a little touched or something. Remember that photo I sent you? The sexy one? You thought it was sexy? Of course I did. Why would you say that? I don't know, Georgie says. Kind of comes with the territory when you're a girl. Talk about stupid. Georgie can't help smiling at this. Anyway, so Heliana was apparently watching me outside my window the night I took that. When I went to sleep, she climbed into my room and tried sending it to some of my friends. You know how bad that could have been for me? Those things spread like wildfire. The next thing you know, I have the word slut forever attached to my name. Easy shakes his head. You're not a slut, Georgie. How do you know? Maybe I am. I know, because there aren't any sluts. It's just a word guys made up to make women feel like crap about themselves. Georgie nudges him again. You are pretty awesome sometimes. You know that? I do, Easy says, grinning. But why would this girl do something like that? I don't get it. I don't know. Luckily, she sent it to my friend Trevor, who's gay. He responded with a photo of somebody puking and a big smiley face. I still don't see why. Carson told me she believes in these old Swedish folktales about forest and water spirits, fairies, that sort of thing. Carson says she thinks one of them is responsible for my dad dying. I don't know. Maybe she thought I was in danger or something. Maybe. She and her grandfather have lived across the street from our restaurant for years, but I just never knew how strange she was. Both her parents died when she was a kid, so I guess I just assumed that's why she was like that. Well, it probably is, Easy says. Not sure what else to say, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a key. I think I can get us into the warming hut later if we need a break. A break? Just to rest up. Maybe get a little snack? Last time, that didn't go so well. No, Easy says, pocketing the key. I guess not. The chair jostles them a little as it passes through the tea bars. It's a minor thing, but it's always made Georgie nervous. Carson, too. She remembers how he used to clutch at her arm when they rode up as kids. She looks behind her, sees him riding up with Gordon. Gordon looks like he could be Carson's father. She turns away, the thought of it squeezing at her. My son decided to step in, Gordon tells Carson. It's good you're here trying to help out this girl. She's my friend, Carson says quietly, trying to find the route Heliana might have taken up from the fort. That is, if she even went up the mountain. There was no way of knowing for sure. Gordon leans back drapes his arm across the back of the chair. I can't believe I've lived here all these years and never once taken a ride on this. My dad used to take me and Georgie up here all the time to look at the wildflowers. Me and Georgie mostly just ran around and stuff, though. Gordon looks down between his dangling feet. 
Would you just look at all those yellows and purples? Kind of hard to believe all this will be covered in snow in just a few months. And tourists? Sure, Gordon says, nodding. But without the tourists, people like your mom would be out of business. That's what they call a symbiotic relationship. Carson is quiet for a moment. They're called lupine, the purple ones. You don't say. Dad would name them all for us, but that's the one I remember because I liked it so much. They've been around for thousands of years. He said people used to grow them for food. Maybe this girl can eat some if she gets hungry. I think you have to cook the seeds. Not sure, though. Well, either way, she hadn't been gone long enough to be the flower-eating kind of hungry yet. Carson is quiet again, the flowers passing below little more than a jumble of color. See that lady behind us? Gordon turns in his seat. Dina? No, the other one, with the black hair. Yeah? I almost killed her. Gordon doesn't say a word, just watches the boy. I dropped a soda can off the overpass. It hit her car. And why on earth would you do a thing like that? Because the girl we're looking for sort of tricked me into it? How do you trick a person into something like that? I don't know. You don't, I guess. Carson watches the chair behind them. She was having an affair with my dad. Gordon strokes his beard. And you're sure about that? Yeah, I think he might have loved her. And there you have it. Don't forget to join me on Monday for episode 15 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zernt. To check out more of my work, go to my website at kathycolas.com. That's C-A-T-H-I-C-O-L-A-S dot com. If you're an author looking to turn your book into an audiobook, email me at kathycolas at gmail.com. Let's talk. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review or share it on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on Monday.